So this is a question that I think many people want to ask but are afraid to. What exactly do the Hong Kong protesters want? To have this discussion, I reached out to one of the more interesting thinkers and writers on Hong Kong, uh, the journalist and writer Elaine Yu, who's been seen all over from Descent Magazine to The New Yorker and other publications. The conversation drifts in and out of a lot of different ideas, but um, to lift, I think, a Stephen King title, it talks sort of about the nightmares and dreamscapes of Hong Kong. So some of what has driven Hong Kong protesters out into the streets is based on fear, fear of where their city's going, fear of what they'll lose when they are fully absorbed into China, fear of never being able to have their own say in their country's future or politics. And I guess the dreams differ for a lot of different people. Uh, some people just want to be able to make a living. Other people want to become billionaires. Other people want to live in a world without billionaires. And uh, many more people just want to be able to have a voice in the first place. And Hong Kong being as neoliberal a city as it is, that can be a very difficult proposition. So Elaine and I talk about all these issues and more. We'll touch upon uh, Mark Fisher, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, other thinkers, and so on and so forth. It's a fascinating, rambling, rollicking chat. If you like what we're doing, help support us. You can tell more people about what we're doing. You can reach out to us on Twitter. You can send us an email saying, you go, Matt, good job. Uh, you can reach me to do that. Uh, my email is matt at asiaarttours.com. And of course, you can check out our website, asiaarttours.com, where we introduce people to writers, thinkers, journalists, activists, creative types, so on and so forth, all throughout Asia. All right, here's my chat with Elaine Yu on the nightmares, dreamscapes, hopes, and desires of Hong Kong. I hope you enjoy. before? Do you have any ties there that um, gives you insight into some of the behavior of, of China or how sometimes Chinese tourists will think about what they're seeing in Hong Kong? Well, I haven't, I can't work in China as a Hong Kong journalist, but I have interacted with them here and I, there are actually a lot of pro-Beijing Hong Kongers here who aren't really like necessarily super linked to China, but then they, you know, are very nationalistic, very patriotic, especially, you know, with China's rise. I think it's emboldened a lot of that sentiment. So it is, some people like to write off, write them off as just, you know, mainlanders, right? But there are actually a lot of pro-Beijing Hong Kongers who, you know, share those sentiments. But, you know, to answer your question, um, 
I think there's actually a pretty big range of of feelings towards Hong Kong. It's not just, you know, that these are just troublemakers and they don't understand, uh, you know, the country or, or a color revolution or something. There definitely are some mainlanders who support Hong Kong's cause as well. So it's hard to paint just like a simple picture, but for those who are very antagonistic, those who want to destroy, I think today we're going to see more of that because there's going to be a pro-Beijing rally later today. And is that something, so in Taiwan, they'll use a technique, there's a group here, uh, I forget their technical term, their nickname is the White Wolves, and they have links to the triads and, and sort of local Taiwanese mafia. But they'll do these riots where they'll deliberately try to start trouble. Part of that is to intimidate people into sort of uh, being silent. And then I think part of that is to put fear into people so that people who aren't protesting just want stability. Is that some of the the techniques behind the pro-Beijing rallies where there may be, there's more of, I think, a centralized command structure to that than the sort of spontaneous desires of the the pro-independence or pro-resign protests. Is that fair to say that there's more of a uh, strategy behind the pro-Beijing protests? I think it's a mixture of both because I have spoken with people at the pro-Beijing or the pro-police rallies and they're just normal Hong Kongers. They aren't like unrelatable people. They are people who look like my relatives, sound like my relatives. They aren't, I don't see anything nefarious or sort of organized in a, in a shady way about some of these people coming up. But then I've also seen people at these rallies who came in groups. They don't speak Cantonese. They don't even speak Mandarin. They're speaking a sort of Chinese dialect. And they come in groups, they seem a little confused, you know, about sort of the the surroundings. And I don't think they look like they are, you know, just here to voice out their their concerns or you you see something a bit more organized around that. And there have been reports about uh people attending pro-Beijing rallies who were paid. There were reports, you know, showing WeChat groups organizing them. And there was a really good report in Initium, a Hong Kong media site, that uh, showed that they were, you know, promised a meal or a dinner at the end of the day. It's like part of a Hong Kong, you know, a day in Hong Kong kind of tour. So there is that element as well. But when it comes to the triads, that's really tricky. And I think no one really knows until unless they're a part of it or have, you know, direct links. But, you know, even back in Occupy uh, in 2014, in the Mong Kok occupation, especially that territory, you know, has a long history of triad operation. And there are a lot of agitations, just people seemingly there to stir things up. But then they have also been linked to both the pro-Beijing side and sometimes they're also seen 
defending their territory from uh, authorities. So I think when it comes to the triads, they, you know, the saying goes here, you know, they, they will take, I mean, they have their own interests to guard, first of all, but they're, there's a lot of speculation about, you know, links with the government, the local local leaders here, or even, you know, the central government. So that's a really murky area that I don't feel confident uh, talking about as someone not knowledgeable in the inner workings of this. But there has been so much speculation about, oh, this was, you know, friends with or cozy with, you know, the, the former leader of Hong Kong. Lang or you know they are you know have links to you know mainland groups and or they are defending their territories but that all starts to get very uh murky it's certainly something where it sounds like we can say not everything that we see in the protests is organic and maybe part of why journalism is very valuable is is figuring that out um and i'm hoping that's sort of what our our conversation will do today where we can sort of talk about what desires are organic, what might be manufactured, and sort of your journey or the the journalistic process of how you separate which is which. Um, the first question I want to ask is sort of what are sort of the simple desires that you've heard? Um, I think for a lot of people who are interested in the activism, the old people's protests was really interesting. So if you want to talk about something general in terms of what young people are saying we can do that but i'm i'm i am very curious about the old people protests and the desires that they were voicing why they wanted to come out and what they were saying they wanted um for hong kong right because this desire for democracy and freedom they aren't new they hong kongers have been promised universal suffrage you know in the city's mini constitution called the basic law and that was exactly what the umbrella movement was about in the first place beijing didn't grant them true universal suffrage and in the pro umbrella years there's been a series of crackdown on the opposition so the recent protests are so massive and they have linked so many different groups you know it's not just the young people who are coming out the old they call themselves a silver-haired generation you know, coming out to so that young people don't have to walk alone. And you have mothers coming out saying after the legislature was stormed, saying, you know, glass panels can be replaced, but human lives cannot. And you see, you know, different demographics coming out this time. And, and it has also taken on, the movement itself has also taken on a darker and a more desperate tone because it has ripped open these wounds that were never healed after Umbrella, which is that the universal suffrage, the true democracy that Hong Kongers were promised constitutionally was not only denied, but in the last few years, this desire for democracy has slipped, has, it's come from wanting something aspirational into guarding you know, the very basic freedoms that are also being eroded. So it went from something quite forward looking to realizing, wow, these, you know, democratic institutions that we've long had are, or have to be defended against, for example, their people's 
favorite politicians being barred from, or activists being barred from running for office, their elected leaders who represent their vision of hope, their vision of the future for this place being kicked out of parliament. A journalist, a foreign journalist being effectively uh, expelled. So these are very basic things, very basic values that Hong Kong has been built on, but not only is democracy denied, but you know, the basic uh, rule of law, you know, core values of Hong Kong, these things they believe are under severe challenges. So that's why I think the desire has always been there, but it's also taken on, you know, this this profound feeling of powerlessness and frustration that's made it look a, a lot darker this time. And, and sort of tracing back through the silver-haired protesters, the uh, it's fascinating when you go back and look at all the examples of Hong Kongers, this being the, the Cantonese uh, majority of the population, um, even during colonial rule, trying to assert sort of independence or a desire for independence. I'm wondering for, and I know that would be around maybe 66, um, but also even during the more neoliberal period of Hong Kong's governance, there were a lot of riots about the conditions of housing, about the conditions, protests, I should say, not riots, uh, about the conditions of housing, about the conditions of infrastructure that um, Hong Kong's former colonial governors, they eventually had to introduce more socialist measures. Um, in terms of reforming these infrastructures and, and introducing or improving basic services. And it seems like a lot of those have slipped. Um, for your own knowledge of, of Hong Kong history or, you know, just from if you have relatives there who you talk to, are they able to trace a line or a lineage between the desires they had and the desires they see young people making? Or are they more there in solidarity, but they're at peace with what Hong Kong has become? I think there, there are the pro-democracy group, the, the veteran Democrats in Hong Kong who preceded, you know, the young activists that we saw today, and they have always been fighting for democracy in Hong Kong. So that's sort of the original movement in Hong Kong that began, you know, in the last few decades. Um, who looked specifically at what Hong Kong should look like in the post-handover years. But that generation is also, you know, the baby boomer generation where the property market was, you know, rising like crazy. That's, that's given birth to this whole fixation with this obsession or even fetishization with wealth, the accumulation of wealth, you know, getting on the property ladder. And for Hong Kongers, you know, in the last few decades who saw what China was going through just across the border, the cultural revolution, all the political upheavals, whereas Hong Kong, you know, had this, you know, tremendous economic rise and people really crave People from that generation, especially, craved stability. They craved, you know, they are practical. They are money-minded. You know, the most important thing at the end of the day is business as usual. That's sort of the bad rock in life. 
And that has sometimes been pitted against political struggles in the city and yeah, the anti-establishment movement, for example. So during Occupy Central, um, public opinion eventually swang against the movement because they would say, oh, it's starting to really, really disrupt business, the economy, it's posing all these inconveniences, you know, to the usually otherwise very smooth and lucrative uh, markets here. And, you know, even now, this time, the movement is in its, it's in its seven week, you know, shorter than the umbrella movement, but people are already complaining about, you know, its impact on business, the economy, tourism, you know, with the weekly and sometimes almost daily protests that we're seeing right now. So, yes, there's always been desire for democracy, but there's always been, you know, in mainstream society, this desire for for practicality and stability because you know that sort of desire is is basically shaped by capitalism and the accumulation of wealth here and capitalism is has been a defining feature in in Hong Kong here and even as something that's defined against China you know its constitution says Hong Kong will retain its unique capitalist system as opposed to China's so-called socialist system we also had sort of these local protests that haven't received as much international coverage about parallel trading. You had these, these, this really, these protests that are very hard for me to unpack, but I tried to frame them as sort of the battle between the, the average citizen's Hong Kong dream versus maybe, you know, the petty bourgeois or slightly higher uh, class, uh, the Chinese dream. And I, I'm just wondering, when we look at sort of how capitalism or desire for capitalism it has been taught or uh, absorbed by both populations, do we see any differences? And if we looked at it more through the lens of political economy, can this dream of an independent Hong Kong coexist with sort of Xi Jinping's dream of a nationalist rise of China? How do these dreams show similarities? How do they differ? And was the Sheng Shui protest a good example of how they sometimes come into conflict uh, for real, for the lives of real and ordinary people? Yeah, I think Songso, which is a border region between Hong Kong and China, is exactly, demonstrates the flashpoint, you know, the everyday realities of, you know, what this, it's not, well, kind of integration, but what what this interplay looks like, because the parallel the parallel trading issue, um, some people just want to call them straight up smugglers, but it's been around for a long time, and in the last few years we've seen a, a lot of protests uh, against them, and sometimes it's taken on a very you know xenophobic tone, so. They were seen kicking their luggage. They calling them locusts, and those were the terms that made the headlines. But when you look deeper, you'll see that there's a lot of uh, frustration and even trauma, you know, for Hong Kong residents in Sangsou, whose lives have been completely turned over, uh, turned topsy turvy by by the visitors and the tourists and the parallel traders 
because their community there has been transformed, basically becoming just pharmacies and and you know or cosmetic stores for for mainland visitors, and the rent has gone up as a result. And just seeing there, it's not gentrification per se. I mean, the rent is going up, but at the same time, it's the ubiquitous pharmacies. They aren't seen, you know, in the Western sense as something upscale, right? It's not uh, attached to anything sort of hipster or culturally sophisticated. But it is, in a way, gentrification as well, but with this mainland, very mainland character. So I've talked to residents who say, you know, all these tourists and visitors come in with their massive luggage and they just roll over you. They don't even look around. So a few of them have gotten, you know, hurt from rolling luggage even. But just there's, I think it's hard for outsiders to see the profound uh, sadness and frustration to look at your home, to look at your community transform to, to something you don't recognize and something associated with um, a place, you know, that you fear for, namely China. So I think it's it's a very good example of the everyday reality of, you know, what that interplay between Hong Kong and China looks like. In researching Hong Kong, something you come back to time and again, but they sort of lurk in the background, is the billionaire class. And I had no idea, and still I, st- I, re- I started reading uh, Alice Poon's book on land sales in terms of how land has historically been used to raise revenue and how this has sort of uh, given those who invested early in property uh, uh, monopoly. Uh, and I had no idea how much monopolies interlinked in Hong Kong. So for my understanding, you might buy an apartment that's owned by a billionaire and his property development group. The gas that goes into that um, or the infrastructure of the apartment will be manufactured by that billionaire's company. The gas that goes into your apartment will be owned or go through a port that billionaire owns. And then when you go home to cook on your stove that was manufactured maybe uh, in China at a factory uh, that the billionaire owns or is a partner in, the groceries might come from that same billionaire (laughs) where they, they bought, they, other groceries aren't allowed to come into Hong Kong, or it's just, it's so much of a capital investment that it's essentially, it essentially bars new competition from opening up. So I wanted to ask for um, you, um, having spent a lot of time in Hong Kong, and and uh, I know having analyzed some of these systems of control, how does living under a system where you can trace the stake you buy to the stove you cook it on, to the apartment you're living in, what effect does that have on Hong Kong citizens? That book by Alice Poon, Land and the Ruling Class, is is remarkable. It's really good. Because she was an assistant to one of the Kwok brothers, I believe, of one of the largest property developers in Hong Kong. And she has become, you know, after years of working with 
one of the original tycoons, she has become a fierce critic of that whole system, right? Calling it, you know, very close to a kind of feudalism. And I think Hong Kong people are extremely aware of how much dependence of, you know, the moment they wake up, they turn on the light, they use electricity, they, you know, go take public transportation, they eat, you know, even the the rent they're paying. It's it all goes back to a handful of ultra wealthy family dynasties owned by oligarchs. So people are very aware, but at the same time, some people have lionized these billionaires, you know, saying they are living symbols of Hong Kong's economic rise and its international clout. But of course, to others, they embody Hong Kong's staggering levels of inequality and they have captured key markets you know, in the last few decades. It's never just property developer. They also own, you know, supermarkets. They own energy. They own public transportation. So it's really everything, right? And back in Occupy 2014, the big aspiration was democracy. But when you look at the messages that they have scribbled all over the surface, they are calling for... You know, they are saying, you know, there's big collusion between big businesses and the government. And they're calling for that to be dismantled as well. So even though, interestingly enough, as I said before, Hong Kong's capitalist system is, you know, or Hong Kong's freedom from China, its autonomy from China has been carved out through its, its capitalist system, which is how it's defined in the basic law. Hong Kong is to retain its unique capitalist system, right? Which makes it different from China's so-called socialist system. But people, especially starting in 2014, and even before that, you know, activists are increasingly pointing out to the collusion between big business and the government and saying, this is exactly you know, why the system is so wrong. This is exactly why there are so much there is so much inequality in Hong Kong. And what's really interesting that I've went, I've observed is the government, uh, Carrie Lam's administration and the people before her, they say, oh, if we solve you know the inequality issues, if we solve livelihood issues, then people will be happy and they'll stop calling for democracy. But the questions reporters have been asking them and people all over have been asking them is, do you realize this inequality actually comes from, you know, this government system that has always serviced these powerful firms and they just ignore that question. They are happy to, you know, in their bubble, separate the two. When people realize, you know, you can't have true democracy if your government system or your whole system is so dominated by these, that the interests, the special interests of these corporations and big businesses. For this, these systems of, um, 
control would are are the billionaires replacing the colonial interests of of a Britain or uh, an international firm that was allowed to exploit Hong Kong? And what would be the political strategy for a China of allowing these billionaires to essentially control Hong Kong? And and I think we can say almost neo-feudalism. I I don't think that's an exaggeration when you look at the scope of dominance. Um, I've tried to raise this over and over in talking to a a diverse uh, group of people I've interviewed, but basically Hong Kong's government is selected by its business community, which is not which is, is, is millionaires and billionaires, to sound like my favorite politician, except I don't have a Bronx accent. Are these billionaires the placeholders for what would be sort of colonialist powers exploiting them? And why for China is it allowing these billionaires to continue their exploitation? What's in it for them? So I think the Hong Kong billionaire CCP relationship is interesting. It's there. The, the, the allyship is there, but it's also quite complex. And you're right that, you know, when Hong Kong, a small group of Hong Kong people, around a thousand, when they select the leader of Hong Kong, you'll see all of the original oligarchs come out, like Li Ka-shing would be coming in to vote. Um, Li Xiaoqi would be coming in to vote. You'll see all these people. And it is such a an illustration of, of how the system works. On the other hand, we have also seen, you know, some friction between the two. I mean, the oligarchs, the billionaires, their preoccupation would be to make money. And being aligned to the government would always help that. And there has been a symbiotic relationship between the two. But if you remember when Li Ka-shing moved a lot of his assets outside of China and the Global Times lambasted him, those are the rare instances you will see, not exactly a fallout, but you know, real friction between these two powerful classes of people. And even with this extradition bill, saga the pro business the business community has been extremely rattled so that's another example of how the central government or the pro beijing local government and the business community don't always align and there's this famous image back in a few years ago when president xi jinping visited hong kong and he and li kaxing had this 30-second handshake, and, you know, there are all these headlines around it because, again, it's so symbolic, and, you know, people are just with their usual, you know, fetish of wealth and and billionaires. They, you know, find that, I mean, it depends on who's looking at that, but some people, some people would see, you know, this shows a lot, you know, about why the system's wrong, but for others, it's like, wow, that's like, the most powerful people, you know, you know, sharing that moment. Of course, there's that alignment that serves both interests, you know, for the billionaires' interests, it would be, you know, government policies who would favor them. That's why Hong Kong doesn't even, you know, have a robust competition system. It's, it really has an environment that favors this kind of 
this kind of oligarchy essentially. And like you said, like you suggested, the government, you know, when making money, when, you know, business as usual, when, you know, that that practical mindset, you know, that comes with this economy is beneficial to Hong Kong's authorities as well, because, you know, it means people will always prioritize stability over political struggles. So on the so even though it's not always so simple, there can be friction between the two. Obviously, it has worked in a symbiosis for a long, long time as well. A fellow uh, journalist, Rosemary Ho, wrote a column that uh, was interesting where she talked about sort of the U.S. left abandoning Hong Kong. Now, she, I think she was a bit generous with the term the left, but she made a good point that for the most part, the only people who've uh, taken interest in Hong Kong at, uh, to this point uh, mostly have been conservative lawmakers, uh, figures like Marco Rubio and the U.S. with its large imperialist presence in Asia, obviously, that rattles China, or at least is on China's radar whenever the U.S. shows an interest in, uh, in affairs in, in China's uh, region of the world. We've talked a lot about these very obvious issues that should appeal to the Western left or the American left. Things like billionaires, oligarchy, demands for democracy, people trying to put into place systems of justice that work for the many, not the few. Why do you think, um, because I know you've written for dissent and, and other um, publications that might be liberal or left. Um, why do you think that, that it's been such an uphill struggle to get a larger international audience to show solidarity or to find some of these fault lines that to me are obvious um, about what's going on in Hong Kong? Yeah, you're right. Um, I remember talking, asking some activists uh, when they go to the U.S. and I wonder why is it you know Nancy Pelosi or even Marco Rubio why are these people hearing at Hong Kong and not people like Bernie Sanders when Hong Kong's democracy struggle is like you said there's a lot of room for solidarity to be built with you know the left because they're essentially not looking just at right and left but they're looking at bottom and up so it's true that the Democratic Party, or even broadly speaking, the the liberal camp, or even people truly on the left, China has always been in a sort of blind spot for them. That's why not a lot of them have even spoken out about, I mean, some have, people like Elizabeth Warren and others, they have been outspoken about Xinjiang, but even then, it's not... Um, there's not like a collective outrage for something so uh, so horrific. And I've asked my friends in the U.S. about this, who you know identify as you know being on the left, and they say, "Yeah, it's Trump all the time. You know, the biggest emergency is Trump, and it's always about Trump." So I think it's a combination of the U.S. political landscape itself right now and Trumpism and 2020 
and also because of its history of not really engaging on China issues much, let alone Hong Kong and, or even Taiwan. And I remember listening to a podcast, I think it was with Chris Hayes, and they were discussing the Xinjiang issue, you know, for the first time. And, you know, it's been among people who've followed China, people have been talking about it, sounding alarm bells over it in the last few years, right? But I think they referenced this New York Times article that packaged the issue in a really accessible and powerful and visual way. And I think that's when it reached a lot of people for the first time in a really real way, in a really visceral way. And they, the way they talk about it, they say, this is so alarming. We have to do something about it, even though it's on such an isolated you know, it, it seems so isolated. It seems so far away from the U.S. So that's when I realized the issue, actually. People are, the China issues feel alien to them. They are not, even though it's much more on the news these days, it's not something they're familiar with at all. So I think, yeah, that has contributed to the lack of a solidarity. I just remembered this. In 2014, I remember I was kind of going between New York and Hong Kong for a bit towards the end of Occupy. And it really struck me to see people in Hong Kong showing solidarity for the Ferguson, uh, for the movement against police brutality. There was some, it wasn't a major theme, but some people started to take that on. So that was one that was something I saw where, wow, the, the two can be in conversation. That is great. But outside of that, I haven't really seen much like, I guess, both ways. You know, that's why we see instead of, you know, people saying like, oh, AOC, AOC, they're like, oh, Trump liberate us. You know, that I think illustrates so mm-hmm. much disconnect between the, the progressive elements of both both places. Recently, I, it was either Tom Cotton or a fellow sort of far right wing, uh, I don't even know what to call them, neo-fascist, um, fascist probably is okay to say, where they were talking about um, essentially like this, the global cosmopolitan class. And the, the billionaires that we talked about, their influence does not stay in Hong Kong. Um, obviously, uh, with Taiwan, where we looked at figures like Terry, Terry Guo, where he is going and building Foxconn in Wisconsin or trying to and, and coming back and using that as a way to rally his base here in Taiwan. There is, um, you know, a global billionaire class. The billionaires of Hong Kong send their kids to Harvard, who then get jobs at Bear Stearns, where they marry you know, maybe a, a Malaysian billionaire or a French billionaire's son or daughter. And it's something where if the left doesn't address it, the right will. And they're already starting to, um, at least in America, where you're seeing figures like uh, Tucker Carlson and, and so on, use sort of a natural xenophobia as a way to blunt uh, or co-opt these critiques of inequality. Um, and so I am very nervous that if people like uh, AOC or Sanders or so on don't start seizing this narrative about how to talk about the global billionaire class who are 
dead center in a lot of these conflicts that we're talking about right now in Hong Kong or in Taiwan, then the right will. And it seems like they're already starting to. Um, is, 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 is that something you would concur with, with how you've seen some of these issues play out in Hong Kong? Absolutely. I think it is dangerous if the narrative is dominated by one group of people who, you know, it's, I've heard really interesting analysis. That's why you see some Chinese dissidents not being allergic to Trump. They are even, you know, supportive of Trump because they can, they believe he can rein in Beijing. And I think that that pitting against the two at, at the highest level. And I, I think, yeah, it's a really reductive way of, of looking at US-China relationship. And yeah, I absolutely concur that, you know, it, you know the, 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 the fewer people talking about this when it's dominated by one group, it just becomes associated with, you know, with the broader politics and it makes collaboration and makes solidarity among progressive people across the globe a lot harder when these issues are in fact so interlinked. So I have to ask you uh, a question again, and this is aimed more towards the left, who I think really falls prey to if I call something socialist and it's not in my country, I'll just assume it's socialist. So the left, um, Brian uh, Hill here in Taiwan has done really great work sort of talking about China in a lot of ways is no longer socialist. And just because it says it is, it has, if, it, if it doesn't walk like a duck and talk like a duck, it's not a duck. And a lot of the behavior of, of China recently has been extremely imperialist, has been about the cultivation uh, and co-option of billionaires uh, within their own country. So allowing people like Jack Ma or Robin Lee to gain incredible amounts of wealth and then bringing them into the party or making them party adjacent as a, as a method of, of having control over them. But I wanted to ask, using that famous quote from the artist Jenny Holzer, protect me from what I want, is there anything that we should be fearful of where we're voicing these desires for democracy or for less Chinese influence? Is China actually protecting the left from anything that's even more terrifying than how the Chinese government currently behaves? And that could be a truly globalized neoliberalism, Hong Kong billionaires with no control over them, which I've heard some people on the left talk about this extradition law uh, in that way. Um, are they protecting us from anything? Should we be afraid of the demands we're making? Or do you think that that sort of counter argument falls flat when you look more closely? So just to add, just to make it a bit more complicated, when people in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong's very specific locale, when they talk about right or left, I've heard young people say, yeah, the pro-Beijing side is the left because that's a historical legacy. And, you know, pro-democracy people are on the right. I remember, you know, talking to young to younger students who that's how right and left is defined, has been defined in Hong Kong and has continued to be. 
for, for some people looking at it strictly through its genealogy. But then, of course, other, you know, the more international, um, I guess, the intelligentsia, they would say, you know, they are obviously pro-democracy, but then they are on the left. So it, it, left and right is actually very confusing here. Are, is China protecting us from something even worse? Is a world without China or sort of the controls that it offers? It's brutal, blunt controls over capital. Um, and in particular within Hong Kong, where the billionaires do have to uh, be held to account. Um, because we've seen in, in my country, uh, America, where, just for people who don't know where I, I'm from, because I bring up like 10 countries every time I interview people, because I'm always traveling. Um, in America, you know, obviously, uh, democracy's been co-opted uh, by the billionaire class. And we don't have like just very blunt controls where if I, if you're a billionaire and we're not happy with, for whatever reason, you're not uh, in line with the, the demands of the government, you know, it's brutal, but we'll just black bag you, which China has done to numerous billionaires at this point. Um, so I, I'm just, I just wanted to ask that as someone who I believe would, would consider herself more liberal or left, um, or someone who's interrogated some of these ideas, is China protecting us from anything? Should we be afraid of just these demands of democracy without also, uh, if we leave this sort of neoliberal capitalism unaddressed? And are Hong Kong's protesters talking about this? And as you may be alluded to, saying democracy first and then the billionaires next. What I see protesters demanding you know, they're they're asking for something very simple, right? It's just democracy. And I believe they also think that this is just the beginning. They're asking for democracy, yes. It's their overriding goal at the moment. But they would also recognize that, you know, democracy would only be the beginning. I think China or even the Hong Kong government haven't shown that they are providing or offering another reality that is not completely crippled or dominated by billionaires. Instead, we see much more alignment between them. So I think protesters have always connected the economic issues with the political issues because everything, in fact, all the inequality, uh, all the crony capitalism, stem from the system, stem from politics itself. So I think they recognize that democracy would, if they asked for democracy, that would only just be the beginning. And they're not going to be convinced that um, the authorities currently in its current form are in fact protecting them from, from, from these influence from, from billionaires. I'm reminded of uh, Ishe Landa and Adam Tuz's work in Nazi economics, where uh, Hitler and the Nazi party would very publicly denounce capitalists publicly. <laughs> and then privately, they'd just have meetings with them and say, okay, you guys got to do this and uh, you can keep doing whatever you want. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, um, not to draw, uh, what's a good way to put it? Obviously, their political projects are different, though. Both the U.S. and China have concentration camps now. Um, and that's my opinion. Um, but it, it is bizarre that in public, 
just like the Nazis, um, these two major uh, countries would denounce the capitalist class, and then in private they they have meetings. That's that's what happens in China. If you're a billionaire, you just go have a meeting with the party. They tell you what's up. You go oh, okay. And uh, then they keep denouncing you in public or saying they're communist and uh, you keep being able to do whatever you want. Um, so I, I don't know if you want to touch that at all, but I, I just noticed that from a little bit of the research I've done into Nazi uh, economics and, and how Hitler sort of manipulated public sentiment. Um, something that I think is fascinating, an image that I, I had to bring up with you. So I, I, I had brought up uh, Mark Fisher before, who, for people who don't know, is this British theorist who continued earlier work from other Marxists where he said essentially, like, the only way to defeat capitalism or to bring about a different world uh, is to create desires outside of capitalism. That if all our desires are created within capitalism, we can never desire anything new because we don't know how to desire or what that desire would look like. And that image to me, if for people who haven't seen it, I'll put it up when we, when I take a clip for this podcast, is a, is a woman in a designer dress carrying a designer handbag, you know, looking like a, a Hong Kong Carrie Bradshaw, basically, running through blood while police are, are in the periphery, just outside the photograph, chasing protesters, beating them with batons, there's just strewn merchandise and bent umbrellas covering the floor of the mall. And I, this is not a, a scientific or journalistic question, but just seeing these images, did you get a sense of just like that neoliberalism has failed? How did people with this, in, it's just bizarre. Um, this bizarre scene, how did they react? What has been some of the lasting symbolic or metaphoric power of these images? And do you see uh, this this scene as sort of as interesting as I do in offering this, this metaphor that the desires of capitalism have failed us? Um, yes. First of all, it is an extraordinary image. I was there that night covering the clashes inside the mall, and I was just like, Wow, I cannot believe this in front of my eyes. It was it was the most surreal thing that I've seen in this movement. It was even more surreal than the storming of Lechko. Well, first of all, because they have been, you know, working for hours to break into the legislature. So I knew what was coming, but this one was just mind-blowing. And then I saw that image and you know what's funny is that it's not really, I, I actually haven't really seen a collective uh, outrage or a collective desire, you know, for something outside of this neoliberal um, capitalist, capitalism, because people are saying, whoa, you know, this mall, they just, you know, they just let riot police take over. So they are very angry with, you know, Sun Hong Gay Properties, which, which owns this mall. But then on the other hand, they are very happy with Pacific Place owned by Squire Properties for saying, wow, their staff has been so helpful and, you know, accommodating the crowds, guiding them, helping, you know, people in wheelchairs. And so they aren't, 
you know, being angry, they're very happy with Swire properties, despite, you know, it playing a role in the domination of Hong Kong's economy. So I actually find it interesting that protesters, pro-democracy protesters have long called for a more equitable distribution of resources. But then when it came to this, this protest, this movement, it that rage isn't really directed at these conglomerates, but they are, you know, picking, they have, but, and, it, and it, I think they also want to take, you know, all the, all the allies they can get. So if they are friendly to protesters, they will like them. But then if it was Newtown Plaza who, you know, they believe might have let in riot police, even though they had denied it. Um, and, but they did that, that mall did take out their Lenin walls. They did, uh, they weren't, you know, the most accommodating to their expressions of discontent and dissent and protest. So, yeah, that that whole desire for something outside of neoliberalism is, I didn't really see that this time. And I think it's because of the different responses, the different companies' responses to the protests and how it has shaped peculiar new sort of uh, relationships. I interviewed Claudio Sopranzetti, uh, who's a scholar of the Bangkok protests. Um, so I think around 20, 2004. And what the Bangkok protesters did, I, I think you might find this interesting. Very lower class, poor countryside. They would go to malls, like the ultra wealthy shopping districts of Bangkok. And one of the quotes, Claudio, because he was there um, interviewing in real time during the protests, is a protester points to like a Gucci store and is, is just like they won't fire because they don't want to damage the Gucci purses. And they, they told him later this joke of like they, they seriously considered, uh, or I, he couldn't tell me if it was a joke or serious, of using the Gucci purses as like a body armor. But like, like the cops wouldn't fire because the the um, the Gucci purses. We can kill the protesters, but the Gucci, no way. That's that's too far. Um, do you think maybe if if we're not seeing sort of this Deleuzian or or Fisherian desire outside of capitalism, are people at least being made more aware um, that the imaginary wealth that they want to get? So they want to be billionaires, even though it'll never happen. Obviously, the billionaires are learning, and, and the reason they're terrified and uh, is because they they're realizing their wealth won't protect them. Um, it, are 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 people in Hong Kong who imagined that they could become billionaires one day sort of slowly realizing that wealth is nothing without uh, sovereignty or wealth alone does not keep you safe. First of all, I think ordinary people, everyday people don't even dream about being billionaires. They just want to have a decently sized home without, you know, paying all of their salary or two thirds of their salaries towards it. So they're not even aspiring to amass enormous wealth. 
but people who are uh, more wealthy, more affluent, they, I've heard both people who, I think it really comes down to how much sympathy one has for the powerful. And I think people who are more, who see themselves more uh, in the, through the eyes of the powerful, or they are more sympathetic to the powerful's, you know, interests and concerns, they would, they would want to be closer to them. And they would see, oh, maybe it's just safer to go with whatever, you know, the political winds blow. It would be safer to be closer to the authorities, you know, without recognizing that in in China, these things aren't, you know, one thing, one, you know, one day it can be in your favor. The other day you can be, you know, in the crosshairs of, of the powers that be. But you know, they aren't really highlighting that. But on the other hand, there are people who, of course, realize that, you know, my wealth, my assets cannot be trusted in in a system without rule of law. So I think that's where the line is drawn. It's really of how, how much value they, they put on the rule of law. And for a lot of business people here or people who care about you know all money and all that um i mean everyone cares about money but for people who who know who have concerns over you know who have enough wealth to be like super concerned about it they they know you know how rule of law has been vital to you know making the system fair and safe for their own assets that's why we're seeing you know people moving their their assets over to Singapore, and yeah, Reuters did that piece about uh, tycoons also moving their wealth out of Hong Kong. And that's where I I, uh, I don't really know what to do because it's I don't want rule of law to be as as uh, Katarina Pistor of, of Yale has called the code of capital. So I'm not at, I think that's where, like we talked about, the left needs to be articulating uh, a vision. Otherwise, we, you know, we just have sort of xenophobic nationalism as the only blunt, bloody hammer that can be used against capital. Um, And I don't want that as a method. Um, The last question I wanted to ask you is, I uh, am very curious because the protests have been so horizontalist. Very little in the way of leaders, very little in the way of sort of the uh, idolization of, like in the U.S. we talked about AOC. I am very happy for her, but it creeps me out that more people aren't like, yeah, let's make a movement <laughs> inspired by her, as opposed to putting all this weight on on a figure like her, Ilham Omar. Um, I don't think that is a, a, a recipe for success. Um, for uh, uh, diverse and powerful left. And I wanted to ask you, uh, being familiar with both the U.S. left and, and, and Hong Kong's or these protests, what can the, the Hong Kong protests, you think, from Be Like Water to Lenin Walls to this horizontalist structure, what can they teach or offer uh, as um, strengths to maybe an American left or a UK left who's willing to to listen. And do you see in this horizontalist structure, are people 
more interested in ideas that might even be more anarchist, where they don't necessarily even want democracy. Is any is, has it made anyone a fan of Murray Bookchin or or Bakun? Is there any has any uh, like even beyond democracy demands or ideas or dreams emerged from uh, these protests? Yeah, I actually think. I've been wondering, just covering these protests for, for a few years now, why it has stalled only at democracy and not, you know, you're not hearing major chants about, you know, dismantle the oligarchy every day. You're not hearing, you're not hearing chants about feminism or like dismantle, you know, patriarchal systems, including, you know, those seen in politics. And this goes back to what I said before. I, I think people will know that democracy is only the first step. And if they don't, without that, they can't even start to have other things. That's why no one was excited about Carrie Lamb as the first female leader. No, no feminist was like applauding that because feminists are pro-democracy in their DNA. So that's why that's why we, we saw that in Hong Kong. But in terms of lessons, I think the Hong Kong and US contexts are very different because in Hong Kong you don't have there isn't room within the institutions to fight for democracy. That's why it has to take in street form. And in the U.S., they're actually the, the fight can, you know, you can take the fight into Congress. You can build this bottom up movement, start from the grassroots and influence the inside from the outside. You can actually there's much more inside outside pool or collaboration to be done in in the U.S. than in Hong Kong. So I think it's hard to compare the strategies of both places and even though police brutality in Hong Kong has shocked a lot of people it is still nothing like that in in the U.S. where people will die from just you know standing there so without posing any threat but one thing I think People, can, people in the U.S. can look to Hong Kong is, is the sheer persistence that we've seen the last, last few weeks and the, the flexibility of it, the creativity of it. And I particularly am, am fascinated by the way they have used, they have reclaimed public spaces with these Lenin walls, with occupations or artwork. So I think that relationship with public space, which is very much shaped by capitalism, like it is in the US, I think is something that yeah, US activists can look to Hong Kong and you know and see how they can form new relationships with their surroundings as well. Uh, well I guess just to 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 ask you very briefly about the piece 
did you did you pick up any techniques for mental health that just for protesters or activists listening were were new to you that we could close on as sort of a, a note for how people are lifting each other up in these protests? Yeah, I think the the support stations, the self care stations that have cropped up when are there when there are protests. I think it's we're seeing that support online, but we're also seeing that support physically. And it shows, you know, how people are really trying to look out for each other, even when they're back at home, just on their phones or when they're out in protest. So that's, that's quite incredible. And I was talking to a counselor who have been helping others with, you know, with, with stress and mental health in, in, politically difficult times and she actually recommended a lot of people around her to just tune out for news and just stay away from social media a bit and I think it applies to the U.S. as well um, but of course it's hard for reporters to to stay away from the news even though it, it is still healthy to at least take like an evening off or something but that level of support we've seen and the fact that people are talking about it so much more openly because mental health has been a delicate subject here i think that's a it's been a depressing time for a lot of people but there's a positive shift in not just the discourse about mental health but also the level of support that has been offered and have you have you gotten a free hug i have not gotten a free hug but I, you know, have friends, family members who are really supportive. So I think, and, and colleagues who are, who are very supportive to each other. So I think that's, that's been vital. Yeah, I guess just to, to close, and I'm sorry to do this PS, it, it, um, but it was just really interesting when I think of like the hunger strikers. So you have this like vanguard doing this really, radical direct action and it's very depressing on the western left when people do that people are like okay fine whatever but in hong kong what i've noticed is like people will go and talk to them like even i think legislators have gone and talked to them and so it, it always feels like that cartoon where it's all the protesters in black like grabbing the person in white at the front, like sort of saying, you are not alone. And it is really rare, even, you know, I've never seen it and I, I don't know how it works, but all these disparate elements sort of are coming together to support one another, even even people as radical as, as hunger strikers. And um, I wish I knew how to bottle that and, and give it to activists all over the world because it's just so unique. Yeah, one thing I found fascinating is the kind of stranger intimacy that we have seen in public places related to protests. Because people in Hong Kong, you know, every day aren't necessarily nice to each other. People are sort of in their own worlds, you know, in, in a really packed place, you know, impatient and stressed out. But, you know, in these protests, people have reached out to each other and people are in mass, so they can't even see each other's faces. And I was, I found it really moving when I heard 
some of them say, you know, one day I hope we can all take off our masks and and meet each other. But I think the the intimacy among strangers and the kindness among strangers we've seen in the last few weeks is something truly radical. Do you do you see anything really radical in that kindness? Is that something that like even in a like we're a democracy in the United States and we're brutally rude to each other often. That's where does is this kindness have any radical potential or anything that activists should be paying more attention to? Because I, I was talking to a, a, another uh, journalist and, you know, it people are dismissive of it at times. The recycling, the hugs, the linen walls, the girls making um you know, chains or um, do you think this this kindness, as you put it, maybe this radical kindness, is there anything that we should be taking more seriously about the, the friendliness and, and the warmth that we're seeing in Hong Kong? I think so, because it's important to realize that, that this kindness didn't come from a vacuum. This kindness came from a very specific protest context, a context of resistance. So it's not just, you know, cutesy, wholesome, crafty kindness, you know, with origami and hugs and linen walls and colorful post-its and self-care stations. It is a kindness that people are showing each other in a really difficult time and which can never be divorced from its its context of resistance. So I think it's a very intentional part of it. You know, the fact that the Lennon walls, it has ranged from the profane to the really encouraging and supportive. And I think this is not orchestrated in a sense, but it was something people really want to show their allies. And it's a part, a big part of the feeling that, you know, you're not alone. And we, you know, at the most basic level, let's be kind to each other. And that's what Roy Kwong has been advocating as well. You know, the, the lawmaker who has been elevated to, you know, God level these days because of his, his relentless efforts to take care and look after demonstrators and young people and students. And he has been advocating for for gentleness. And I see that as not a soft thing, but a very radical act associated with resistance. Last question. I have to ask this because it's really weird and interesting. Do you see that kindness and that humanity as sort of the inverse of the neoliberal capitalist desires that people are taught in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is dog eat dog. You know, people live in apartments the size of closets. Um, the billionaires, like you talked about, are lionized from going from someone selling plastic flowers to the largest property owners in Hong Kong. It's structured and the brutality is lionized very often. Do you see these sort of relationships as what happens when capitalist desires or what we're told we are supposed to desire and how we're supposed to behave under capitalism 
fade away? Is this just what humanity looks like when we're not competing? I think so, because under Hong Kong's stressful capitalist system, you're to survive, you have to look at you have to only look after yourself. You have to maximize, you know, benefits for yourself in order to just survive and just to pay the bills. And that cuts off connection and generosity with other people. Either whether they're your friends or just a stranger in the street. And rich people, you know, the way they decide to contribute is through charity. And that's still a very, that's still part of the industrial complex of wealth. Whereas the, the relationships, the connections, and the, and the kindness that we've seen, because they are done at a protest, sometimes they're in occupied spaces, other times it's just like a very fluid protest, but it's still an alternative space outside of the everyday hustle to survive. So I do think it is something that has arised outside of the system that's dominated Hong Kong and also to challenge that system that is trying to isolate us and alienate people so that they're just serving themselves. Don't give Milton Friedman the finger, give him a hug, maybe. <laughs> Um, this was a really fun, enlightening chat. I'll be in touch. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. No, thanks for reaching out and for the great questions.